Join us each week as Andrew, Ray, and others bring us in on one of their weekly phone conversations with an amazing agent. This is Little Oak Weekly. Good morning, everybody. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful Friday. I'm recording this as we're heading into the long weekend. Yeah, it's just an amazing, amazing morning, and I'm super, super excited to share this uh, this interview or conversation with you. This morning, uh, my guest is Dr. Shahana Alibi. Uh, for those of you who've been with us for uh, since prior to COVID, if you go back in the memory bank to two AGMs ago when we were allowed to meet in person, you'll recall that we had Dr. Shahana Alibi as a guest speaker at our AGM. Her message was very impactful to a number of you as we received that feedback in the in the weeks and months following. She's a medical doctor who practices here in the Fraser Valley. She is um, a specialist in the mental health field. She's a TED speaker, and she uh, she does a number of other things uh, in the community that all kind of circle around um, mental health and um, and just well being overall. So she's got some uh, really awesome perspectives and philosophies and interesting things to say. And I thought it'd be great to catch up with her again and to kind of, you know, just recapture a little bit about what she shared with us at our AGM two years ago, and then just talk about life and COVID. And, and we've also had discussions with some of you in leading up to this conversation, things that are on your mind and things that you would, you would like to hear from her about. So uh, I'll be incorporating some of that as well. And, and we're just uh, super excited to have a chance to spend some time with her. So. I'm going to uh, phone her up right now and uh, and get Dr. Alibi on the line. Hi. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> good morning. I'm good. Nice to connect again after it's hard to believe how long it's been. Oh, is it? Isn't it nuts? That like, I know. <laughs> yeah, I I'm so looking forward to chatting with you. Um, it's such an interesting. Yeah, I, I just did a little bit of an intro that we that we use for the podcast, like introducing the guest. So I just finished recording that, and you know, I was reminded again that you were with our company at our AGM, like literally weeks before lockdown. Yeah, uh, yeah. like it we was Feb- it was like middle to late February, I guess, right? Yeah, uh, we I, literally if it had been moved by a couple of weeks, we wouldn't have been able to do it. I know we took a flight to Mexico the next morning. And when we came back, it was kind of that beginning of March. And then I did another uh, uh, panel thing. And then by that time, it was like, okay, this is it. Like, no more public speaking, <laughs> no more nothing. So it was crazy. So that was one of the last times I was actually on a physical stage, not over Zoom giving talks. Wow. So it's been and a big change. So much has transpired. So have you been, I mean, whatever, we're going to go in a million different directions. So I'll just start firing, sure. the, I'll start firing the questions. Have you been actively speaking and engaged in the way that you normally were like all throughout COVID have you just like adopted zoom are you still doing your thing or or what has that looked like for you yeah still still doing my thing in that way and in some ways it's given me because I do have a a company that helps direct me in terms of all all the stuff that I love the speaking and the content writing I don't love the other stuff in terms of the the marketing or the website or the social media part, which I still have avoided. Um, but because of that, it's given me some guidance as to, you know, how to build the website, how to, what is my messaging really about giving, how, giving me some clarity? Because I think it's easy. This is a trap many speakers fall into. You hear a talk and you walk away going, well, that was amazing. I felt inspired. I felt like I had a nice warm bath and I feel all cozy and lovely. But when you really think about what did I just learn, most of the times, even the best speakers cannot summarize what they are trying to tell you in one sentence, because they just want to throw a bunch of lovely things at you. But that piece of tying it all in together is actually the most difficult piece, right? So I think that's what a little bit of this break during COVID has allowed me to do some introspection as to what am I really wanting to speak about? The timing was good because I think everyone got a dose of, if you didn't already have a bit of anxiety, you sure got one during oh, yeah. this long period of time. So no doubt. It, suddenly we're all in a very, we're all on common ground, which can be, it's a very shaky common ground, but it's common. So Right. Sure. Yeah. I guess pre, yeah, pre COVID, I guess it would probably be fair to say that 
at least it could feel like you were the only person experiencing, you know, stress and anxiety. And now it's fair to say everybody is, is, has experienced some form or another. So the way that I give the example to a lot of people is that imagine if I was your doctor and I told you that I think I'm pretty sure that you might have a diagnosis of cancer and I'm going to call you with your biopsy results in a week and we'll have to wait this week. I know it's going to be difficult, but I'll give you a call in a week. And I never call. Mm. That feeling, that feeling of angst, anxiety, drowning in the what if, drowning in the, oh my goodness, what could my life look like? And then seeing people around you who do get the call, right? Who actually get the call of being COVID positive. See, I was on the COVID team when this first started. I was on the telephone. The, oh, really? The, the, yeah. Okay. So I would be the one to call you and tell you you are COVID positive before public health got to you. This is like right back in the day, March of 2020, right? Or maybe April, I should say. What Did you volunteer for that? Or why, why did you get that yeah. lovely job? I, I, I know. <laughs> uh, I did volunteer. And to be honest, I feel I had a lot of guilt because they needed physicians to do this kind of work, um, which there was not many, but there was, but there was also physicians that they needed to be at the front line. A lot of my colleagues did that work, but my husband and I, we had a difficult conversation of, you know, it's that mixture of I'm a physician. I should be doing this. this is, I, I want to be there at the front lines, but yet I have a young family and my husband and I kind of came to the conclusion, like, this is the way that you can help via the phone and you still keep our family safe. Because at that time, it was a very scary time. It was a very, very daunting time. And to be thinking that you're going to be at the front line doing these swabs and as we're learning about PPE and all the rest of it, um, it felt very overwhelming. But I have to give kudos to many of my female colleagues with young families who were right there on the front line. So I just... I think in some ways I actually felt a bit embarrassed that I was over the phone and not right there. But at the same time, that was my way of contributing. But yeah, anyways, I would be the one to tell you that you are COVID positive and you can imagine how well those conversations went. <laughs> yeah. Like this awful. thing has evolved so much. Like, yeah. but back in that, in the first two months when oh, there was very yeah. little knowledge around what it was and you think worst case scenario, I, I can imagine that uh, a conversation at that point in time was um, very scary for a lot of people. And because of the unpredictability, I know I had one of the physicians I had been doing the role for a week or two before me. And he said, look, like you can't, you know, it was, like you said, we did not know anything. So just like, I would she chatted with this young girl who was 30, 35 and she sounded fine, completely well. And the next day she looked at her, his chart and he was, she was an ICU, you know? So she's like, he's like, this is the kind of unpredictability. And I, that's the part that I really hated that fact that, okay, I know you're okay for now, but like I said, we don't really know what was coming. And now things have improved so much with, with public health being so much more involved and in all the rest of it. But I think, yeah, it was, it was certainly a scary time to navigate, but now on the flip side, um, even though of course COVID, the response team is so much more through public health, but from a family doctor's point of view, I have to say, I'll start up a conversation about, okay, you've got back pain or abdominal pain. And I have to say about 85 to 90% of the time, anxiety is at the root of it. Like if you just dig a little deeper, so how are you sleeping? I'm not sleeping. Why are you not sleeping? I'm worried about my kids. My daughter's in healthcare. I worry about her. My kids are overseas. You know, I haven't seen my best friend. I'm lonely. Like all of this stuff comes out, right? So there's this beautiful saying that just because the stressor has gone or eat, and it's not gone, I'm not saying that, but even if you know more about COVID, it doesn't mean that the stress response is going away. Some people's heads are still stuck in April 2020. They're still in that panic mode, even though we know more, you know, and all the second wave, third, third wave, and all of the, the media, the, the franticness of the media certainly doesn't help the cause, right? So. Interesting. Yeah. And you have to remember that people had lives before COVID. People had pain and chronic illness and cancer oh, and all of yeah. these awful things, right? So then you're adding this extra layer and uh, you're already that much closer to the edge. It doesn't take you much longer or that much of a push to feel like you can't deal with this anymore. You know what? Something, I mean, here we are talking about COVID. <laughs> And like yeah. COVID just impacted everything. So last night I'm out for dinner. This is something that that's actually kind of frustrated me 
it's been a frustration point for me. We're out for dinner with with some friends last night, celebrating her dinner. This uh, woman turned forty, and you know we're quite close with them. And here we should be celebrating her dinner. We spent three hours together at dinner, basically talking about different aspects of COVID. Yeah, and it's just it it is that's been frustrating for me just how it dominated every single facet of life like you just can't get away from it and anyways you know i'm just chuckling out loud because here you know we are doing a doing a podcast and right away bam into the impacts of covid on life but it's just it's it's everywhere and i feel like you can't get a break from it and for me i would say that's a point of anxiety and stress just the fact that i it's hard to have a moment where somewhere in your brain you're not thinking about it well, of course, and it's ubiquitous. It's like it's become like air, right? It's because we all breathe it now. And if you've ever heard of this ideology by Dr. Harriet Lerner, it's called the social contagion, right? When you walk into a room and people are celebrating like a birthday, like you said, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel that joy and contentment and excitement. But you walk into many rooms now, COVID, post-COVID or during COVID, and people love it. You, anxiety spreads like wildfire. It's infectious, just like COVID is, right? So we and the media perpetuates that. Our friends perpetuate that. So you're right. It is very hard to escape. But the ironic part is that in some ways, it's brought people closer together because they finally have this negative common ground to be on. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like we all have the same problem. We all have the same diagnosis. Okay, perfect. Finally, you didn't think my problem was big enough, but actually I'm also worried about COVID there, you know? So I have significance too. So it's given people that leeway to, and not in a bad sense, it's to complain, right? And to be in that state of misery. And those people, it can be very difficult because like we said, everyone is in a different sort of situation. If you were trying to work from home and have young kids and are trying to do it all, well, your life looks very different from somebody who's single, for example, and might not have to balance all those different things during this time, right? So it's kind of like that ideology of money, right? If, if when you give someone money, they, they either become a better version of who they are or they become a worse version of who they are. Money doesn't change you, right? No, <laughs> money, money only makes you more of what you already are, totally. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. And that's what COVID has done. It's made you more of who you are. So if you're the kind of downer, complainer, worrier, it's going to make you more of that. If you feel like I'm going to rise above and just keep pushing ahead, it's going to make you more of that. And you can see examples of both of those all over the place. Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. But uh, it's very easy for people in our position to talk about that when we don't understand the idea of, okay, I've got this many mouths to feed. I've lost my job. I have a small business that's not doing well. I've got parents that are aged. Like, you know, all of these real real things that uh and i think it's the the lower the lower middle class it definitely is affected much 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 more right so and i'm seeing it amongst their youth as well right i'm lucky that i have younger kids who don't even really know what a virus is until now right like they they're under the age of five right for them it's just as long as the playgrounds are open they're happy but when i work with the youth that i do so much of their identity is built through social connection you rob them of that, you rob them of themselves. So what has, let's talk boundary for a second. I'm assuming yeah. when you say that you, that's what you're referencing, right? Your connection through yes. the youth and the boundary. Yes. What, like, I don't even know what to ask or where to start, but just what, <laughs> what has that been like in the last, you know, whatever, 12, 14 months? Uh, yeah. Give me a picture of that. So right now, just to give you an overview, I split my time between the Foundry Central, which is kind of our big main office where we have access to you know all the different sorts of support. That is the hub where ages 12 to 24 can access care whenever they need to. And then I actually also work on site at the Bakerview Center for Learning. So Bakerview is a school where, for whatever reason, uh, youth have not been able to be part of the quote-unquote regular school system. So they are then sent to Bakerview. And honestly, it is an extremely supportive, holistic view of learning because they allow youth to be youth. They allow them to take their backgrounds and their path and also meet them where they're at. So and what what I'm I'm there in affordable at the school. So there is access is not an issue because the youth worker literally brings the youth to me. So wow. it's been which is because I 
think we forget as youth, you can't say this drive over to me or like, you know, that this doesn't happen. So it's been a gamut of things. I think um, I've definitely seen an increase, of course, in, in use of substances, whether it's reported or not. I see them, you know, I think because the nomenclature of like I'm struggling with my mental health, if that was already so common before COVID, that how do you up the ante from that? Then you're starting to see, well, I don't want to be here anymore, right? Because I was so depressed and anxious before this time. Well, then what, right? So then I just, I, I can't do this. I had a young lady in the other day and she said something so profound to me. She looked at me and she said, I, I want to be here. So don't get me wrong. I, I don't want to kill myself. But she's like, my worry is that what if the pain gets too much? What do I do with this pain? She's pointing to her chest, this physical pain that she's experiencing. And we forget that, right? With anxiety, depression, so many of these mental illnesses, it's not, there's the mental component, but people physically feel these awful, awful feelings of despair, of not wanting to be here. So she, it was, it was sheer hopeless, right? And it had taken her so long to come. And those appointments are always very overwhelming for both of us, I think, because in a short period of time, you have to go from, I don't know who you are, I've never met you before, to I need to diagnose you or at least see if there is a diagnosable condition to see, okay, are you going to be receptive for treatment? And I remember handing her the prescription and she just looked at me like deer caught in headlights. And it was as if I had just flooded her with information. And that's also a disservice to a patient, right? You can, because this is my wheelhouse. This is what I do every day. This is, this is her N of one. Like she's never done this before. So you can't be like, oh, this is what depression is and you're going to be okay and all of this stuff. So I just looked at her eyes and I took the prescription back and I said, wait, let's just start again. I said, you're safe. Safe. You're here. Like that's step number one. And she kind of took a deep breath and saw her shoulders relaxed a bit. And then we built from there. And then after about another 20 minutes, she said, okay, now I'm ready to take that paperback. But, uh, you know, you, you want to... As a physician who does this work quite commonly, you want to automate the process. Sure. Right? You see this enough. It's pattern generation. Yes, you've got check, check, check of symptoms. Here's your antidepressant. Go. Well, no, it doesn't. It never, ever works that way. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's been a definitely uh, a rocky road to with some of these youth to see them going through so many different challenges. And I think one of the most heartbreaking things is that they're going, many of them, I should say, are going through this without a parental or an adult guide. You know, you look at your children, I look at my children, and you think, you know, I know Brene Brown said this best, she's like, the goal of raising your child is that you either raise a child that asks for help or doesn't ask for help. That's it. You know how and when to ask for help. If they do, perfect, your job is done. It's that simple. But if you have a youth who at the age of 13 left home because their parents were so physically and verbally abusive to them, and now they've been living at auntie's places or, you know, different extended family members' places. Who is their home? Who do they call and say, I need you. I need some source of support because they don't trust an adult figure. And that is the part that I find most heartbreaking because it's these parents and not for their, it's just for their lack of, I'm sure they've gone through very difficult, difficult times and the cycle perpetuates itself. I had this 17 year old who came to me and she drank away the last two years of her life. She started drinking when she was 14. She was at home drinking all of age 15, all of age 16. She's several years behind school. And I just looked at her and I said, and, and both of her parents are alcoholics. So this is kryptonite for her. This is, she's got this beautiful combination of genes and environment and it's an explosion. But every time that she feels stressed or anxious, the only familiar thing to her, that feeling is the bottle, right? So, but she needed to not feel judged or feel blamed, you know, because I think that she's been in and out of, you know, with police and in what they call the drunk tank and all of that sort of stuff. Even that has such a negative connotation, right? It makes you feel like you're less than human. Yeah. But she's telling me the story, eyes to the ground. And I said, you know what? Like, let's just move past that, right? That is a task. You're only 17. You've lived a lifetime. And unlike your father who still struggles with alcoholism in his 60s, you're 17 and wanting to make a change. Like, that's the win. So 
okay, there's so many, there's so many things here that are um, relatable to, um, you know, I would say the experience of people within our our company and our our brokerage over the last year as we've dealt with COVID. And I, I told you that we've we'd had some conversations with some people leading up to this con- leading up to our conversation here this morning. Sure. We just asked some people like, hey, what you know, what would you like to hear discussed, and and you know, how could this be of best use? And you know, and it's no question that um, you know, on the topic of alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we you know we when I say we, I mean I, I can't speak for for everybody, but I can say I'll put myself in this camp, uh, like absolutely sure. in this camp that you know, food and alcohol, alcohol specifically though was certainly became a tool to get through parts of the, you know, the lockdown and the pandemic. And it, and much like alcohol has become an acceptable form in uh, or an acceptable thing within our culture, like, it, you know, it's celebrated and it's used for connection and it's joked about. So that as well became a thing. And I'm just wondering, you know, I, I think some people began to experience negative impacts of that. Right, like mm-hmm. over time, like it's one thing to do that for a day and or a week or whatever, but it, it, you know, lockdown didn't last a day or a week, and so I, I know that, like, I, I can even, I'll, I'll use myself as the guinea pig. I, through about twelve month period, I gained ten pounds, and I can all but guarantee that the ten pounds I gained was basically increased alcohol consumption. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I wouldn't put myself in the category of. I don't even know how to categorize, you know, what what's an alcoholic and what's not. I certainly wouldn't put myself in that category, but I can 100% say that I was using a substance to help cope. And yeah. so, you know, I don't know. The question I want to ask is just like, how do you, you know, how do you compartmentalize that? And then when it comes to, you know, alcohol and then food and nutrition in general, what what can we do in order to be better with that? And how it relates to, you know, anxiety and stress and our and our well being. That's a big. I know. I just gave you. I kicked. <laughs> I just kicked a big ball over the fence. You, you did. You did. No, no, all good. There, there's there's a there's a lot there. So feel free to pick on whatever you want. But this is, you know, it's just it's something that has it's been discussed a lot. Yeah. You know, it, it, within our within our our you know family of people in our company, and and I know uh, it's something that's on people's minds. So. Well, let's just take a step back and we look at big emotions, right? If we just think about the word emotion, emotion means energy in motion, right? We forget that, that emotions come, emotions go, right? They're not there. They're like clouds in the sky, except during lockdown, a lot of us tended to live in a very cloudy day, right? Where all we felt was probably just depression and despair and loneliness. And that was kind of our world. When we experience these emotions, the two ways I look at it in terms of how to actually tackle emotions, there's two big categories. One, you can break it down, like actually think about why am I experiencing this emotion? What is this emotion? That takes work. That takes usually the help of a counselor or a therapist to do that work with you. Many of us choose the other form, which is called break the cycle. I just want to stop feeling what I'm feeling, Mm. right? Because I don't like this feeling. But one thing we have to realize is that if you stop an emotion before you actually feel the emotion, you haven't gone through the full emotional cycle. Emotions have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But the minute we start to feel something we don't like, for me, my dial, to imagine that game wheel of fortune, right? When you can see that little spinny thing, my dial always lands on overwhelm. That is my default emotion. <laughs> no matter what I am. That's what you do. That is me. Got it. I'm calling myself out. It is overwhelm and very next to it is guilt, is mommy guilt. I am I drown in, in mommy guilt constantly. So any any sort of negative uh, feeling or experience I have, click, 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 I'm on overwhelming guilt. I do not like feeling overwhelmed. Who does? Whenever you feel something, there's two things that hit your brain usually at the same time. There's the sensation. So for me, I'll once again call myself out, it's that tightness in my chest, it's fast breathing, it's feeling jittery, it's feeling on edge, and it's the story in my head. You're not a good enough mom. You're not doing this for your kids. You're working too much, whatever the situation might be. It's the story and the sensation. So most of us have been trained, and think about it, when you were little and you had a big emotion like anger frustration, or in my case, like the toddler tantrums that go on for days in my house, 
it's the mommy or the daddy that rushes in and says, oh, sweetie, let me fix it. Let me fix it. Never once do we say to our kid, oh, sweetie, that's anger. That's how anger feels. Right. When you feel angry, stomp your feet, do this, do that. But we don't want them to feel angry. So we say, here's a cookie, here's a freezer, here's something else. We blanket, we numb, we blanket, we numb. So by the time we go into our adult years, hence us, we don't like feeling bad feelings. So we numb things. How do we numb things? Food, sex, alcohol, right? These are the things that commonly release dopamine. Yeah. Alcohol has been shown to the same thing as if I gave you a shot of morphine and how wonderful that feels. All those lovely opiate chemicals in your brain, alcohol does the exact same thing. It really works on those reward centers in your brain. And they've been shown that people who have a bigger response to alcohol, i.e. more pleasurable, have more of these satisfying neurochemicals released from your brain. So do you think that those people are going to be more or less prone to drinking more? Right. More prone, right? Of course, because they feel good. They feel great when they do it. Hence why that young girl, her genetics basically told her, when you drink, that is heaven to me. <laughs> so keep drinking, keep drinking. You mentioned alcohol and the effects on our waistline. Alcohol is one of the worst things. And we know this intuitively, but we don't know why. So what alcohol does, it hijacks your body's ability to burn fat. Here we are always talking about all these things that we can do to lose weight and burn fat and keto and paleo and all this stuff. Well, alcohol is a wonderful fuel and will get burned before anything. And it does something in your body called fat storing or fat sparing, I should say. So basically, alcohol will get burned, but fat will not get burned, hence the weight, right? Alcohol also messes up your feeling of satiety, which is why alcohol is typically paired with fruit. Right? We don't tend to make very good choices when we're drinking. <laughs> this is exactly why. Right? Nobody wants to have carrots, sticks, and red wine at the same time. It just doesn't work. No, Cheetos, right? Cheetos and Cheetos yeah. and dip sounds good. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So lectin, our hormone that makes us feel full, alcohol messes this up so we don't feel full as often. So the long and the short of it is you're right, it can be a very slippery slope because nobody really wants to call themselves out and say, look, I am struggling. But we know that in the first week after the pandemic hit in the U.S., say online sales of alcohol increased by 230%. Oh, yeah. The, stat, the stats in the last year on alcohol sales, exactly. I've, I've looked at it in Canada. It's, yeah. it's freaking mind-blowing how, uh, you know, what's happened. Yeah, it's insane. Exactly, right? So, and then you bring up this great point that alcohol is accepted. I can't go and tell my husband or my close friend that, oh, yes, I'm using cocaine to relax. I feel lovely. Yeah. Cocaine does the same thing in our brains. Like, it makes you feel really good. No, that's why they call wine mummy juice, right? It actually has that benign of a flavor that, oh, okay, it's fine to relax with a glass or two or three. And what's interesting is they've done studies that when patients report their alcohol use to their doctor, the doctor needs to double it. Say that again. <laughs> the one, if, I, if I'm a patient I, and you're my doctor and I say, when you ask me, well, how many glasses of wine do I drink tonight? And I say, oh, just one. Well, what I'm actually meaning is, is two or three. Oh, yeah. That's, right? that's a load of crap. Nobody drinks a glass of right, wine. Exactly. That's, Nobody, yeah. right? So let's just take for a second, what's the definition of light drinking? Light drinking is less than one glass of wine for women or less than two glasses of alcohol for men per day. And you want to think a glass is five ounces of wine. These wine glasses look a lot bigger than five ounces for me, right? So totally. like that's the other piece. So heavy drinking is for a woman, anything more than two glasses a night. And I have to say, a lot of my friends are easily drinking more than a couple of glasses. Oh, yeah. Easily. Yeah. See, I was raised in a house. My mom uh, came from a family where alcohol caused a lot of damage, right? Hmm. So she, for her, alcohol was thin. You know, the uh, even the look of a bottle, like, because that was her background, how damaging it had been to her family or what she had seen. So we come into the picture and even for religious reasons and whatnot, but the idea of a beer bottle or a wine bottle was taboo, like completely don't even look at it, don't go near it, it's evil, it's sin. The problem I have with that, though, is that the alcohol itself is not bad. 
It's how you use the alcohol. Sure. Right? Totally. And yes, and I know myself that I, if I ever got into that, I it would be a very slippery slope for me because it's basically relaxation in a bottle. And I know that for me, it might be, and because of how I've been raised, it's always had that very negative connotation. But I have to be careful with my sons because if I say that it's taboo, what do you think they're going to do when they're older? They're going to gravitate towards it, right? So nothing is bad nor good. It's the perception that you put on it and it's the idea of how you use it, right? So it's all of those things. How do you feel about the chemistry of marijuana? And yeah. how it relates in the, you know, and, and how, you know, in, in the same dialogue, just, you know, how it's made up chemically versus how alcohol is made up and what it does in the body. And then also yeah. the thing that, that what I've observed in my peer circle and not just my peer circle, but well, yeah, my greater peer circle is that, you know, marijuana has become the like healthier way to take the edge off. You know what I mean? Like, uh, because it's not sugar and it, you're not, it's, I don't know, but. I I personally don't enjoy it. Like, it's not something that I like, whether, you know, even before it was legalized or not. Like, I, I didn't enjoy it, but I notice a lot of people have kind of, like, replaced alcohol consumption with marijuana consumption. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the chemistry of that and the impacts it has. Well, I think in terms of the marijuana, we've got to dis- define the uh, components. Are we talking about CBD? or THC, or both. Right? Yeah, yeah, well, here's the thing. So, okay, I, I've used CBD oil for pain and, you know, muscle problems, and I put that in a completely yeah. different category. Exactly. I, I'm talking about, like, you know, either smoking it, vaping it, or gummies yeah. that have got THC, the, the stuff that yeah. is altering your brain and making you yeah. feel high. That's what I mean. Like, how does exactly. that exactly. How does that compare in the um, whatever? Like, you know, in, in, in a world, if somebody's, trying to take the edge off and escape the pain, is it actually better or is it just a different version of the same thing? It's a different version of the same thing. CBD, like you said, I'm I'm completely need more research for it, but I think there is some promise there. The medical aspects of marijuana where they can actually really titrate the exact quantities of CBD versus THC. And they've even shown that some people who have really bad pain might need a slightly higher increased THC. But that is all being very carefully titrated um, from a medical company. The youth that I see that are just smoking this stuff, first of all, the marijuana of today is nothing like the marijuana of the past. Right? It is yeah, like totally. a thousand times stronger. Like, it's ridiculous. It's amazing. It's like getting punched in the head. Yeah, it's yeah. so it's so strong. And they're smoking it multiple times a day. And what they don't, and they're using it for, I have often these young girls telling me, well, I can only eat when I'm taking it. But I'm looking at them going, well, maybe the fact that you can't eat is actually related to your anxiety and you're numbing your anxiety with the marijuana and then here we go in this vicious cycle, right? Right, yeah, so yeah, totally. For youth especially, and they've done multiple studies showing this, when a youth uses marijuana at a younger age, that can definitely become a gateway to not only other drugs, but it can alter their brain chemistry. So if you have a predisposure to conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar or even anxiety, that is what's tipping you over the edge. Right. So I have many needs and I've asked myself, just, you know, try to come off. But once again, it's the social aspect. When I get together with my friends, then I do it, you know, or it's that it becomes part of their culture. But I've had many who have stopped and are going, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize how altered my mindset was. I didn't realize that that was not the true me. But they're so doped up all of the time. Right. So it's uh, and once whenever something becomes fashionable alcohol marijuana included that is where the most slippery slope becomes right because like i said you can't go around telling people that you're even using lsd or mushrooms or cocaine or all of this stuff that people are still doing but it's not as socially acceptable yeah 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 that's that's right it's it's once something becomes legal i mean there's there's benefits to legalizing things and taxing it and regulating it but you've now also normalized it and when you normalize something it's it's going to be consumed on on a on a larger scale for sure. Exactly, exactly, right? And this is where that kind of, um, when we go back to the alcohol, people just want a way out of their feelings. We've stopped, we're a culture that hates to feel because we just want to feel steady all the time. We think that the goal of life should be happiness. When when they've done studies looking at that, do you know what the goal actually was when they surveyed people from politicians to prisoners to business people to students to everyone in between? It wasn't happiness that people wanted. Do you know what it could? It was peace. I don't know what it. What is it? 
Yeah. Peace. Peace. They want peace. People want peace, right? They want contentment. They want fulfillment. Happiness, once again, is an emotion. It comes and it goes. If you were happy all the time, you wouldn't recognize it. Peace, you can recognize because it's something that's aligned with your value systems. It's something that fits within you, and that kind of becomes your lens through which you look out at the world. Okay, that's a good segue to something. So there's been industries that have been crushed by COVID, and then there's industries that have been, you know, it's it's been like a insert of high octane fuel and and for real estate as as many people know i mean the real estate market has just you know benefited greatly by the fact that you know for whatever reason and in people's spending habits when we were told we couldn't travel and spend money on a number of other things that we normally would you know on on mass all over the world people started to direct a lot of that money into the real estate world so many of our agents in the past 12 months have done the equivalent amount of work that they would do in two years. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's not an over-exaggeration. Like they, they, we, you know, people who work full-time in the industry and specifically within our brokerage, which we've already got the highest producing and hardest working agents in the industry. Yeah. They, they've literally done double in, in many cases and in some, in some cases more. So it's like, you know, how do you, it's one of these things where we already have a cyclical business and everybody who's in it knows that it has seasons, right? It's not punch a clock, nine to five, you know, consistent. It's up and down uh, with the economy and the market and the seasons of the year. But this has just been like something that no one has ever seen. And uh, most of our people have been going at a, at a 10 out of 10 for 12 months with keep in mind also no vacations or breaks, right? So many of them can run at that pace for a period of time with the goal in mind that, okay, I'm going to unplug and go to Hawaii for 10 days, or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that, right? And, and they haven't had that. And so questions that came into us were literally, what are, some thing, what are some practical things that I can do to help cope and manage? Because you know, while everyone on the outside might go, oh, it must be fantastic to you know, be busy and make all that money. The, the money doesn't mean anything when you're, when you feel like you're drowning. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. So, so let me ask you this, when, so how much, there's a certain amount of autonomy for every agent, right? In terms of, okay, I, I actually want to take this listing or I don't want to take, take this listing. What is that? Is it the drive because this is my season? This is the time where I need to capitalize on this or where does that come from? Or just not to see? Good question. Uh, so it comes from a couple different places. So number one, you got, you're going to have, you know, some people would answer that and say, well, I've been broke before and I've been in a yeah. place where I don't have bounty. And so when bounty shows up, I'm not saying no, yeah. like there's just no way I'm saying yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. And then there's other, there's other people that would um, not be capable of saying no, and they wouldn't be capable of saying no to anyone anytime anyway. Uh-huh. Like yeah. they just, they don't have the ability, they don't have established boundaries. Hey. And, and then now, and then I'll use, I'll put myself in a category. I'll use, I'll use myself as an example. So I, I wouldn't say I'm either one of those. And so I think this is an example of some other people. I, I think there's a bit of a mentality of like, well, this is, this is only going to last so long. Yeah. <laughs> Why not just go, you know, sorry, pardon the expression balls to the wall. Like why not just let yeah. it, let it all go. And go nuts because it's going to be, what, 12, 18 months or whatever. And isn't it worth it in a, on a short-term basis to put yourself in a position where you have done all that extra business and made that extra money because in the long run, you'll be glad you did. That, that I think, is also would be a very prevalent opinion of some. But it's mixed. Everybody's got different reasons. I think a big one, though, is like people just don't know how to establish boundaries. Because it, it comes a little bit of a, out of a, I want to say a bit of a poverty mindset in that, like, thank you. You, you know, like what, what if, what if this call isn't coming tomorrow? So I better say yes to this now kind of thing. Right. And I think before we can even tackle this idea of what your realtors are experiencing, you know, overwhelm slash burnout, really, I always say overwhelm smolders, anxiety burns overwhelmed smolder. So just because it's smoldering in the background, it's no less damaging. Right? So 
that's that's kind of a presenting problem. So before we can even take a step further, the first step for them is to get really clear on their why. Why are they answering that? And sorry if I don't know the right language, but that listing or that. Yeah, yeah no, you're, you're doing it right. Why are, why are you why are you answering the call? It could be totally like the phone for a lot of these people. And this isn't an exaggeration at all. Their phones don't stop between yeah. eight in the morning and 10 at night. And many of them will go like weeks without a, without a breath kind of thing. Right. And so, um, yeah, it, it's a phone call that's coming in from a buyer or a seller or an existing client just saying like, Hey, and a lot of the, here's the, the really tough part. A lot of these calls are great calls from great people that I know. they that they want to help, right? Okay. The equi- the equivalent in your world, like if I were to, like it would be like if you got a call from somebody who you know and love, and they're like, Shahana, yeah. I'm dying. I need to see you. I can't go. And it, this isn't a stranger, right? Like this is somebody yeah. who you know, and you're you know you're already overloaded. But it's like, how do you say no to this person? So. I would say that's a lot of the place that, that these, these agents are in because they've already got a network of people that know them and everybody that they know in their network has all decided to jump into the real estate market at the same time. Exactly, exactly. To say no to someone they know is very, very difficult. So what I first want your, your agents to do is to do this exercise. So first of all, many of us and many of I'm sure your agents are in a scarcity mindset because that is the field that you guys play in. Like you said, it's seasonal. There's, it's cyclical. There's, it's not nine to five. But I need them to write down on a piece of paper, like what if, and I know what you said, like what if I didn't answer that call? Okay, I would feel guilty. Why would I feel guilty? Well, I would feel guilty because these are people who are friends to me. Well, what does that say about me? It says that I'm not loyal. And keep going down. We call it seven layers deep. I can even email this exercise to you. But take any problem you have, i.e. overwhelm, and keep asking yourself the question, why, seven times. Well, why are you overwhelmed? Because I'm fearful. Why am I fearful? Because I'm scared I'm going to be poor. Why am I scared I'm going to be too poor? Go, go down to the basement of your fear. Hmm. Every person needs to do this. Because I don't care whether you feel guilty because the reason you feel guilty, just like I would have with a patient, is because I want to be that loyal, trusted friend or doctor, I should say. But what I actually want in some way, to be honest with you, is I want to feel significant. Mm-hmm. I, I love when somebody comes and says, oh, you were the best doctor and now my friend needs a doctor and won't you help me? Does that make me feel a little bit good or a lot good? Oh, sure. It's, it's, needs my ego. Yeah, totally. We hate to say this kind of stuff, but I need them to be aware of the why. Because let me tell you this, if you're doing the why for the right reason, i.e. I really legitimately want to help you from the goodness of my heart, then the other stuff won't matter. But if you are burnt out already, what service are you going to be to them? And they will respect you more for saying, look, I, I so appreciate your issue and I so want to help you but maybe I can send you this way or that way. Because right now, I wouldn't be the person that you want me to be. And the other piece is just because those people are calling you doesn't mean that they owe you or own you. Does that make sense? Like it's not, oh, yeah, like, totally. This is a, not, like this is not a, an ownership kind of deal. So, and once again, it's contagion. Everyone feels like, oh my goodness, now I need to get into the real estate market or whatever. And there's this frenzy. But if you really ask your agent, there's a part of them that loves to be called and loves to be needed. Sure. Who doesn't? Absolutely. Because they're scared that when the phone stops ringing, they are going to be lonely again and they're not going to have that frenzy of money in business. So get really clear on your fear behind why you pick up the call or why you don't. You know, do you have the courage to not? And if you don't, well, then why is it? Is it because you want significance? Is it because you really want the money? Like, or is it because you're operating from a scarcity mindset and nothing good can happen from a scarcity mindset? Nothing, mm. yeah. right? Yeah. So after they've, they've done that, then they have to learn to set their non-negotiable. I don't care whether you're the busiest person in the world, you still have a set of non-negotiables for you and for your team. And by team, I mean you and your partner, you and your family. Mm-hmm. So a set of not, what is your non-negotiable for me? It's like, I need to move my body every day. I don't care what it is for 10 minutes, for half an hour, for an hour, I move my body in some ways. I pick up and drop off my kids. 
that's really important to me, or at least I try my best to, right? usually I'm the only one who can do it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm home with them in the afternoon. Like I said, they're all under the age of five. So that's kind of peak time for them. You know, we have a dinner together, like whatever the case might be, have your, a couple of non-negotiables and have those with your spouse as well. Because if you and your spouse aren't realizing that, okay, if you're going to go, I'm going to go hard this time and you need to carry my slot. If you guys don't have that conversation, all you're going to be met with when you come home is resentment. Mm. And that resentment is going to, like, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to kill you in the end. And who wants to be loaded and divorced? Mm-hmm. Sorry, but that's exactly what yeah. usually ends up happening. No, totally. So Statistically, it's a true things, statement. <laughs> it's a true statement, right? So, and what often ends up happening is because you haven't communicated these inner fears because you just keep answering the call without realizing why you're answering the call and you haven't communicated this with your spouse that look, I, in my heart of hearts, I really want to go hard this next whatever many months because I want to help as many people. Yeah. Of course we live in a money driven society. Don't I, I get that. But there was this beautiful an analogy that really stuck with me that the amount of things you have in your life, fancy car, dollars in the bank, house are all zeros one after another. They don't mean anything unless they have a one in front of it. And the one comes from the value of how you can help someone else. Does that make sense? So yeah. I could have you the richest person in the world, but I'm still worth zero. So I've got nine zeros, but it means nothing. I don't have that one. I don't have that grounding force in front of me. So I call it, what is your heart behind your head? If it's really in a service and not a scarcity mentality, then your head is in the right position. But if it's not, then then don't do it. Don't do it, right? Or find your not, at least be specific and clear to your spouse or your partner and be clear to yourself of what is going to keep you physically and mentally healthy during this time. That's very good. So if a, it, all things being healthy, like let's say, let's say a person's got, you know, what you just talked about, like let's say they're, they're pretty well sorted in that area then. Can you, can you run you know, 24 seven for a period of time, do you think? And, you know, and, and not to the detriment of your health, if you, if you're doing it, if you're going about it the right way. I think you can, if you look at the optimal health pyramid, there's a reason that impact and contribution are at the top. So this idea is, are you I focused or are you we focused? You can do anything and everything if you are we focused, doing something above and beyond yourself. But if you're coming home at the end of the day and saying, I deserve to, or I get this because I did this, then you are going to burn out Hmm. and you can't run 24 seven. So you need to think about that dialogue in your head. And even if you are serving a mission or serving something greater than yourself, it can't be at the detriment of your family. You often see these kinds of people who say, look, I'm doing all this charity work and I'm helping and I'm, you know, being the best doctor or whatever that I can be, but their, but their spouse is picking up all of their slack. Mm-hmm. Right. If you want to be in that kind of relationship, if you are whole and full, you need to look behind you, look at your family, and going, are they whole and full too, or do they need me? Mm. You might be, you might want to run twenty four seven, but if your spouse is carrying your baggage, then you're doing them a big, big, big disservice. Then don't be in a path. Then then be by yourself. Right. But once the minute that you've chosen to have baggage of a family, basically. You need to give them one of your wheels and say, look, I'm here for you when you need me. Sure. So, yeah, it has to go beyond. And I think this is where men often feel like their role is complete when they contribute. If I check, check off the contribution box, I'm good. And that's not the case. Because of and the established women, roles within our society. Like exactly, the, the overarching. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I often worry about this in our household because just this idea that I still, our family operates in a very traditional sense, in the sense that my husband has a very busy practice. He's often home from work a little bit later. He definitely does help out with the kids anytime he can, but the majority of the household work um, and child work still falls on me. But the other day when I was having breakfast with the kids and serving them breakfast, I chuckled to myself realizing that they must think that mommy never eats because I'm always the one serving them. Right. So I think it was just this understanding with my husband and I that I legitimately love to cook and that's my passion. I love doing that. But it was almost this idea that 
the kids need to see both of us doing these roles because I bet you they're not going to have very traditional roles by the time they're older, right? It's just the way that things work. But men feel like their role is so much more to do with contribution and a woman's role is so much more to do with protection and nurturing, which is why infertility can affect women's emotions so much more because it's innate in many of us that this is what we were put on earth to do. And if you robbed us of that, it's really hard. And if you, and I would say, I mean, I'll speak for men. If you rob men of the ability to provide and contribute, that can be an absolutely um, gut-wrenching thing. It's deep, deep, deep down in our identity. Of course. And I think women also have to understand that just, like vice versa. So I think you have to see that, like, like we're, you know, we've always talked about, there's different ways of showing affection. There's different ways of showing our love. And you have to know what that is for your partner. And yes, it can change, but usually there's at least one or two core ways. And for men, often it's through providing, right? So, mm-hmm. but I think for your agents as well, like you're, you're right. It's the nature of why you probably even entered this profession in the first place, the ebbs and flows of it, the idea that it comes in cycles is part of what I'm sure attracted many people to this, right? The autonomy is attracting for many people. So don't forget why you love to do what you love to do. But the two pieces of advice I can leave you is with is just realize what your root fear is, because all of us have that when it comes to our profession, when we do feel overwhelmed. For me, like I said, it ends up being a lot of significance, Right. And the second one is really get very clear on what are the non-negotiables for you to maintain your physical and mental health. We can let go of our physical health for a long period of, of time, but our mental health, we can. Hey, I, time flies here when we're having fun, and I want to be mindful of yours. But I, can, I, can I ask you one more question before we, uh, course, before yes. we go? Have, has there, is there anything in your psyche or way of thinking or your philosophy that has changed significantly over the course of the last 12 months? Like has, have you, have you rethought something fairly big at all? I think to be honest, it's, I feel like I was in preschool of learning when it came, when I put, when I created the optimal health pyramid, I think I was in my, you know, formative years. I don't think I really understood what I was doing, but to be honest, it's solidified the concept even more and it's made me realize like what does think better actually look like and how important that is and why do you think a lot of us crumbled as a society when you took our connection away connect deeply is on the foundation of the pyramid Mm. so it actually proved me that those two things without those two things nothing else honestly matters you can run a 10k every day you can juice all you want or whatever the case might be but if your mind isn't right and if you don't have people that you can be yourself with, you know, most people just have two or three people that they can actually call in a time of need. That's it. You might have thousands. I would think that there's a lot of people who feel like they don't have anyone they can call in a I time know. of oh, need. Oh, yeah. That's, exactly. That, like, two or three is a lot. Yeah. But I think we get this false sense of security from our social media that we have all of these followers and likes. It means nothing, right? And even if you do, how many people can you actually pick up the phone or have a conversation and actually say, you know what? I'm scared and be as vulnerable as that. Because even with all these mommy groups and stuff, we're all trying to put on the show of look at what my kids are involved in. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what kind of activities I'm doing at home. Significant, significant, significant. But if you strip all of that away, we all have the exact same vulnerability. So going back to your question, yeah, it's definitely solidified my thinking, but it's made me grow richer in the area of think better. And what does that actually mean? Because I think people fall into two categories. Like I said, we don't like to feel these negative emotions. So we go to numbing it. I don't want to feel. But after I've taught people, okay, feeling is okay. And that feelings have a beginning, middle and end and will eventually go. Well, what do I do with that feeling? How do I actually shift my state of feeling? So I just call it, you need to notice your feelings. You need to realize when you're thinking. That's, that voice in your head is actually called thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You need, to, you need to name your feelings. Most of us only have, you know, the dentist study, we can only name three emotions. I feel glad, I feel bad, or I feel sad. That's mm-hmm. it. 
there's many more emotions than that. And most of us say, well, angry. Well, no, you're not angry. Maybe you're disappointed. Maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you're hurt. When I really look at my emotions these days, you know what comes to mind for me? Depleted. Mm. I feel depleted. I feel exhausted because of trying to hold up appearances as a speaker, as a doctor, as a mother, and trying to do all of this without making a mistake. Because as you can imagine, especially in our career, there is no room for mistakes. There is no room for... Be- and guess what? If you make a mistake, the doctor will... The, the patient always remembers. <laughs> you were the doctor that did this. So you've got to realize that you... And I said this to a patient yesterday. I was joking around with her. I said, I am humble to admit that I could be wrong in this diagnosis. So please come back if this doesn't work for you. So she kind of chuckled with me. But you know what? You have to be. Otherwise, I go home and it just festers. So you need to notice the emotion. You need to give it its proper name, which many of us confuse what the emotion actually is. We just want to label everything as anger. (laughs) And then you need to learn how to shift your emotion. And you can shift it by numbing it, which we've talked about, or you can shift it by actually realizing what the patterns that you fall into. Like I said, for me, the wheel of fortune pattern that I always come to is overwhelm. That's me. Yeah, that we, that wheel of fortune thing, it, that, that's a cool analogy. Right? There's, proba- <laughs> there's probably what, like 10 or 12 typical feelings that pop up for people? Uh, about 12. Exactly. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it's just, it's funny because some people call it, your, everybody has a spending dial, you know, that every couple has a spending dial. Some couples love to spend it on travel. Some spend it on wine or food. Some spend it, yeah. my husband and I's spending dial is health. Anything health related, we don't care how much it is, we'll buy it. Yeah, you're getting it. <laughs> totally. Right? But you also have an emotion dial. And that is my emotion dial. But you also have to dig deeper. If I want, if I feel overwhelmed, the story I'm telling myself is, and I'm a bit embarrassed to admit this, but my, emo- my story is always, oh my goodness, Shahana, you work so hard. You do everything. Why do you have to do everything? Be, I am feel sorry for myself. Mm. <laughs> when I had that moment, and it was kind of an aha moment, I went to my husband going, oh, that's why when you come home, I act this way. Because in my head, leading up to when you come home, I've already told myself that I'm doing everything. So he's already met with this huge essay that he's never been a part of. Yeah. That's not fair on him. So yeah, that's, yeah, to go back to answering your question, I think, yeah, it has solidified it, but it's made it richer, it's made it deeper. And it, I need to get some clarity as to how to take the thoughts in my head and put it on paper to share and hopefully help others. You know, I can't help but think we've, we've got you, you use the term mummy shame. And yeah. we have, we have a lot of, really amazing successful mums and grandmas in our uh in our company who you know they they wear two hats and i'm just wondering what you would say to them because i'm sure that some of them will listen to you and go oh i can identify with that mummy shame yeah what do you what do you do with that so just realize that it's normal you know ariana huffington said when they take the baby out they put the guilt in it's there you know it's really hard to ignore so accept it and accept that it comes from a place of you, of, it's actually a very full place that this is that you're protecting the one that you gave life to. So instead of seeing it as guilt, seeing it as a fact that it's actually a way of nurturing your child, that you need to realize, and I'm just actually coming to this realization, that I'm not Shahana the mom, that I'm not Shahana the doctor, that they're not whoever the real estate agent. They're, those titles cannot define you. You know, that is not who you are. That is part of your identity. But who you are is what your kids are going to grow to love about you. Mm. So the way that you show up at work, the way that you help people, sharing the stories. And I often tell my kids about the patients that I've seen, you know, of course, anonymously, but just telling them that this is what mommy did today. This is how mommy tried to help someone. You know, when they came in, they were sad. Mommy listened to them. And you can see their eyes light up. So, you're not doing you're not doing insignificant work with the work that you do, you're doing. So give yourself some credit. You know, realize the bigger mission that you're not just selling a house or listing a house. You're getting someone's dream started, mm-hmm. right? That is the impact that what you have. 
But all I can ask is that you give yourself a little bit of space between the work side of you and the home side of you so you can breathe into you. You can breathe into you. Who are you? Give yourself five minutes, 10 minutes at the end of the day. Please don't just turn on Netflix. Sit (laughs) quietly for five minutes, right? And I don't care what your mind thinks about. Just be still for five minutes because sometimes we're scared. When we turn off everything, I don't want to hear that voice inside my head. But just do it because you need to start honoring that and give yourself a little bit of time for transition as well. But uh, like it's like anything, it's the season, depending on how old your grandkids are, your kids are, see them for who they are and realize that you're fallible as well. You, your emotions will go up and down, but keep showing up and try to be as present with them as you can. Time with you is always rich and well spent. Can't think of oh. a better place to cap it. And I thank you sincerely for your time, Shahana. Um, you're, yeah. You're, you're gifted, and I'm thankful that you're willing to share your gifts with us. Oh, anytime. It's been a pleasure, and always reach out. Happy to chat. Have a great day and an awesome long weekend. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you again. Sounds great. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye.